As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me to the text that we began to consider this morning. That's John chapter 3. Rather, for context sake, let's turn instead to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And our reading will commence there at verse 23. John 2, and verse 23. We'll read down to the 8th verse of chapter 3. Beloved, the word of our God. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. As far as the reading of God's word, indeed may he bless us under it this evening. Well, friend, we continue our, our time in perhaps what is the, one of the most familiar texts to any from the sacred scripture. Uh, we, of course, find ourselves thinking of that conference between Nicodemus and Christ. And friend, as we said before, as we look at the end of chapter 2, you and I are to see that really as an explanation for what's to follow. We're to see that as an explanation for two reasons. Nicodemus himself tells us that he comes representing those of verse 23 of the second chapter. He is part of that number who was in Jerusalem, who saw the miracles that Christ had wrought, and, and so had believed. But, but you remember, as we saw this morning, this portion of people who believed, the many who are described there, John tells us pointedly that, that Christ, as we have it in our translations, he did not commit himself unto them. Now you remember what I said to you, that word commit there is the selfsame word that is used to describe how these many respond to Christ, namely that they believed. The word is epistuon. And so, genuinely, what this 24th verse tells us is that many believed in Christ, but Christ did not believe in them. It's a curious thing, isn't it? But we get explanation as we come to this third chapter. 
Really, Nicodemus is brought to us as an example. Uh, really, as, as an elucidation of what has been said thus far. Nicodemus comes saying that he believes. And in response, Christ says, you must be born again. And there we have an answer to our question. Why is it that he didn't believe them? Well, as Nicodemus is part of that number, he sees there that they are not regenerate. They're not made new. But we can go further. I want you to notice here at verse 4, Nicodemus responds to that question. How can a man be born when he is old? And, and I suppose that question almost, when we read it, uh, almost strikes us as, as being uh, at least unnecessary, perhaps a bit childish. Uh, and, and friend, in one sense, of course, it should be taken that way. But, but what is Nicodemus really asking? Is he really being foolish? Is this is just another instance of, of perfect incredulity? Well, I, I think, friend, you and I need to remember Nicodemus' context. I think behind Nicodemus's question is this idea that was so prevalent in the time. And that was this idea that, that really to be part of the kingdom of God, it, all that one needed was, as it were, the Israelite pedigree. They needed the birth certificate that was stamped appropriately. They needed to be born an Israelite. That's all that was necessary. And so when Christ says you must be born again, Nicodemus quite incredulously turns around and says, but is not my Israelite birth enough? Do I need to be born a second time? And even behind this, in Judaism, at this stage, the proselyte was described as somebody who went through a second birth. You remember, a Gentile could come into Judaism, but, but after, after going through all of those initiatory rites, then and only then could he be described as a Jew, a practicing Jew. Well, the Jews referred to that proselyte who went through all of those ceremonies as going through a second birth. And now Nicodemus' question seems to be along those lines. Is even that insufficient? As you look at this fourth verse, even if all of those ideas are behind Nicodemus' question, you and I can't get away from the fact that there's been a radical change in the man's thinking. A radical change. In fact, a radical change that we've already seen, at least in pattern, in the second chapter. What do I mean? You remember how Nicodemus comes to Christ. He comes there calling him rabbi. He, he affirms that, that he sees something divine in Christ's ministry. But then in the fourth verse, you and I almost want to go to ask and ask Nicodemus, I thought you were calling him a rabbi. I thought, you, I thought you trusted this man, esteemed him a teacher sent from God. But now you're treating, you're treating his words here as though they were foolishness. You're, you're responding with unbelief. In chapter 2, you remember, that's precisely how the Pharisees approach Christ. They go to Christ, they don't approach him as some rabble-rouser after the cleansing of the temple, they approach him as a prophet. Show us. The sign, or as we said before, he could even say, explain to us the sign that you've shown us. Do the work of a prophet. But then when Christ speaks, well then, it's all bewilderment and incredulity. They don't believe him anymore. Nicodemus seems to follow that pattern here. But friend, as you look at Christ's reply, as we take up the rest of this text this evening, in verses 5 and 6, you'll notice that first, the Savior doesn't deal with Nicodemus's question. The first thing that Christ does is he actually elaborates on what he said beforehand. 
He explains, in other words, his terms. And then, and only then, only after that, in verses 7 and 8, does he deal directly with Nicodemus' question. He first of all explains further, elaborates further what he said that that prompted Nicodemus' questions. And then he answers them directly in verses 7 and 8. Now, friend, as we look at this text, what is it that Christ says in response to the Pharisee? Well, the answer to that is quite straightforward. Here, the Lord reminds Nicodemus of something Nicodemus ought to have already known. And that is the subject that Christ has raised here is one that, of course, looks only to divine sovereignty. In other words, the regeneration or the new birth that he's describing is a work of sovereign grace. That really is the point that Christ reiterates here in various ways. And I want us to take that up this evening by looking at two in, in, at this in two ways. I want us to look at, first of all, the effect of regeneration and how that certainly must, uh, must be a work of sovereign grace. And then I want us to look at the essence of regeneration, its nature, and that also showing us why only an omnipotent work of grace can perform it. So take, first of all, the effect. Christ begins by saying, except a man be born again. Now, Literally translated, that statement is that except a man be born from above. Except a man be born from above. And why is that significant? Well, it's significant, of course, because of what Nicodemus has already said of Christ. You remember the Pharisee comes to Christ and he says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. But in reply, Christ says this, You say, I'm a teacher from above. I say, you cannot see. You cannot see unless born from above. It's a very appropriate response to what Nicodemus has just said. You must be born from above to see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But what does he mean then? The kingdom of God. In verse 3, he says he cannot see it without this work. In verse 5, he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God without this work. So what is the kingdom of God? A friend, in the scriptures, as you look at the words kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, there there are cases where the evangelists use them interchangeably. And so what is Christ's meaning there? Well, friend, in this context, and context is going to determine how we define these terms, the context indicates very clearly Nicodemus cannot join the community, the commonwealth of the redeemed, without this work of regeneration. In that sense, here we're supposed to understand the kingdom of God. And it's denominated the kingdom of God for a very basic reason. This kingdom of grace, this commonwealth of the redeemed. Well, friend, it is a demonstration, a a special demonstration of divine sovereignty. If you like divine authority as a king. Charnock puts it this way, the gospel discovers the true governor of the world and sets up his rule and authority. It's this kingdom of God, this this commonwealth of the redeemed, says Charnock again, that you and I are to see most conspicuously the sovereignty and the kingly authority of God. Now friend, if that's all true, then you and I can situate ourselves into something of an argument. If this new birth, this birth from above, translates one into God's special, gracious kingdom, then it must be an act of divine sovereignty. To put it even more simply, 
If the new birth brings one into the kingdom of God, the kingship and royal prerogatives of, prerogatives of God demand that it is God who does it. If the effect of this is translation into God's kingdom, it must be an act of God's sovereignty. And friend, just briefly as we think of this, friend, you and I, you and I need to see, especially in our generation, what Christ is saying here. If it is God's kingdom, his scepter must at every point be acknowledged. It is God and God alone who can deliver us from the power of darkness and translate us into this kingdom, the kingdom of his own dear son. And friend, as you look at the scriptures, this is, this is given to us in so many ways. If this new birth really brings us into that community, well, friend, it must be that such were not born of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. John already told us that, of course, in John chapter 1. What Christ is referring to here, friend, is something that belongs only to the divine will, only to God's will. And, and to press this slightly further, friend, what you and I find here, this idea that regeneration brings us into God's special kingdom, should underscore the fact that it's high presumption, high presumption in our thoughts and hearts to think of regeneration without thinking of divine sovereignty. This is a crucial point for our generation, a generation that centers on entitlement, centers on my rights and privileges. This text reminds us that regeneration is squarely in God's court concerns squarely and exclusively God's scepter. It is an entrance into his kingdom that the new birth affects. My friend, the analogy you and I can draw from this is quite straightforward. Imagine a rebel who has been exiled from the kingdom. What is the only thing that can bring him back? Well, friend, if the man is guilty of treason... If it's the king who has exiled him, then, then of necessity, it can only be the royal prerogatives invoked that can bring that man back into the kingdom. That's the kind of thing you and I should be thinking of when we come to this text. It must be the scepter of God that moves to bring one back into God's kingdom. And friend, again, you and I are to see in this text a reason for our own humility. Here you and I, you and I should, should be more anxious, as it were, to preserve the divine prerogatives of God in our thinking when it comes to the new birth and anything else than to give anything to free will. Free will in this case is a usurper. It would take the scepter from God's hand and lodge it in the hand of rebels. Christ here very clearly indicates it is God's work. So if the new birth, by its effect, brings us into God's kingdom, then, then what of the work itself? How does that give to us this idea that regeneration is exclusively a work of divine sovereignty? Well, friend, again, as we look at this text, you remember how Christ describes this work. It is, it is a second birth, yes, but, but again, very literally, it is a birth from above. It can't be affected by man. It must be wrought from God and God alone. And then the Lord explains further what he means by that. 
It is to be born of water and of the Spirit. Now, now friend, in the original, again, the word pneuma there is, is employed. And what you and I should see there is, is really the idea of life. You, you, could, you could genuinely translate this. He must be born of water and of life or quickening. Now, friend, you see that usage of the word in, in texts all throughout the New Testament. Luke 8, for example. The, the, the girl who was healed, her spirit came again and she rose straightway from being dead. So, what are we looking at here? Well, Christ is saying that, that this work that he's describing is one of reviving, on the one hand, and one of water on the other. Well, what do we make of that? How is it a work of quickening as well as, as, well as a work of, of water? Some have, have uh, explained this, applying it to baptism. Of course, there's no, no grounds for that in the text. Really, the scriptures themselves explain for us what he means. Again, if you go back to Titus 3, the, the apostle makes it quite clear. The work of the new birth is just the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, in which case you have both elements that Christ refers to. You have a washing of regeneration and also a quickening or a reviving of the soul. And so that's what, that's what Christ is saying. He's saying that this birth from above involves both cleansing and quickening. It is both life-giving and purging. But how does it come about? And that's what takes us to our eighth verse this evening. The Lord says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now, striking, there is something of wordplay here. The word spirit, pneumatos, and wind, or, or breeze, are, are, are really referring to the same thing. In the Hebrew, it's the same way. And so what is the Lord saying? Well, he's underscoring the fact, drawing an analogy from nature, that if this is truly a birth from above, if it is a work that revives dead souls, cleanses those who were polluted, well, friend, it must only, it must only be a work of God. And as such, it is absolutely at divine discretion. That's what this text teaches us. And, and friend, note how that very appropriately answers Nicodemus' questions of verse 4. In verse 4, isn't it not, is it not staggering that the Pharisee walks away from Christ's initial response and his first question is, what can he do? In the 8th verse, Christ makes it very clear. There is nothing that he nor any man can do to affect such a thing. Regeneration, or what we refer to as effectual calling, it is a work of divine sovereignty alone. My friend, as you look at this text, and very briefly, you and I are just reminded of something that the scriptures hold out to us in so many ways and employing so many analogies, and that is that man is utterly unable to effect his own regeneration. Uh, we could go through any number of texts. Just take what we saw from, from Jeremiah 13. There the prophet goes and he preaches to a people who are part of the visible church. He goes to them and he, and he, and he urges them to repent. But there was no quickening of, quickening of the Spirit in his generation. That generation would go into exile 
impenitent. And why? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? There is in man a moral, a spiritual inability to do good. He is accustomed. That is, his disposition is bent to do evil. That's man in his natural condition. Romans 3.11, quoting, of course, the scriptures, there is none that seeketh after God. And there's an illustration of this very point in the Gospels that I think we could quickly overlook. You remember, you remember the rich young ruler, Christ's interactions with him, and, and you remember that, that again, the, the rich young ruler, he, he goes away, he's sorrowful, we've seen that before, but, but do you remember the disciples' response to that? Do you, do you remember how the disciples looked at this man who is obviously virtuous, that is, externally he looked, he looked the part, he, he seemed pure. And moreover, not only was he pure, but, but despite all of those around Christ that then were gainsaying Christ's ministry, this man seemed to credit the Lord by coming to him and asking him these questions. And yet the man goes sorrowful away. He, he does go away without, without salvation. And the disciples ask, essentially, if this man can't be saved, who can? You remember Christ's reply. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. Friend, I think that's a text that is often overlooked. With men, it is impossible, but not with God. Again, in John 6, you have Christ reiterating this very point, that if any are made new, it must be a work of divine grace alone. Remember John 6.44, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Striking, that word in the original draw, that word is the same word that is used time and again, especially to describe fishing and fishing with nets. So what is Christ saying? Souls must be in the dragnet of God if they are brought to him. It's a staggering thing. It's a staggering thing that here the scriptures are reminding us, reminding us what we've seen already in Jeremiah 31, that, that if any are turned to God, it's because God has turned them. If any are quickened, it's because the Spirit of God has blown upon him. Friend, as we look at this text, you and I are to lay low. You and I are to lay very low. This exalts the grace of God, it certainly does, but in its immediate context, certainly it was for Nicodemus' humbling. He's about what he can do. And here, Christ leaves the man utterly dependent upon the mercy, the sovereign grace of God. As we walk into this season of mission, friend, you and I should have a lively sense of this reality. There are souls that are going, perhaps, we pray to come in and to sit under the sound of God's word. And, and, and we're going to pray in earnest that God would work. But friend, we have to acknowledge that, that our own salvation, as well as everyone else's, is utterly dependent upon the sovereign grace of our God. But we bristle at that. And perhaps one of the ways that men so often bristle at such, such truths is to say, well then, 
Surely those who come in and who leave and who aren't saved, surely they're not culpable for their unbelief. If God must be the one who affects this work, that, that man is impotent to do it himself, well, well then surely God is to be blamed, seeing that that man isn't turned. Friend, I hope that that's not our disposition if at the end of next week you and I see so, so little fruit. No, friend, man is culpable at every point for his unbelief. That kind of argument's like this. It, it doesn't work in the real world. It certainly doesn't work theologically. To take an example from the real world, if you find a debtor, if you find a debtor who's applied for a loan to a bank and that loan has been denied by the bank, can he go back and, and blame his original debt on the bank that won't give him the loan? Obviously not. Even though the loan might have been used to pay off that debt, the bank did not make the man a debtor. Friend, we have undone ourselves. We, by nature, were undone, unmade, and made debtors. The question you and I should not be asking is why is it that God doesn't save it all? Why doesn't he make all men new? The question we should be asking is why does he make any? Why is it that the Spirit of God blows upon any? You see, friend, as we look at this text and as we leave this portion of John 3, you and I, you and I are left by the Savior in a place where we're supposed to acknowledge our utter dependence upon divine grace. In this, God is glorified. Friend, it's, it's a remarkable, marvelous thing that salvation is only of the Lord. In this text, you and I are supposed to be sensible of that. In other words, as I've just quoted to you from Hosea 13, you and I should have a lively sense. Thou hast undone or destroyed thyself, but in me that is in the Lord is thine help. That's what this text is supposed to leave us with. And the comfort from this passage, friend, is is, is manifold. Even though Nicodemus at this juncture doesn't see it, The comfort from this text is, if the Spirit of God has originated the work, if it begins as a work of divine sovereignty and and overcomes all of man's impotence and all of his wickedness and hard-heartedness, then surely that work will continue. And so, friend, that's precisely what we're told in, in Philippians 1. He that began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. If it begins as a work of divine sovereignty, if I've contributed nothing to it, Well then, friend, I can be assured that sovereign work of grace will be consummate in time. He will work his will, even in this. Friend, for you and I, as we live as Christians, as our hearts we find ourselves so often complaining to God about, uh, as we often complain of our coldness and indwelling sin, this is a wonderful comfort. Friend, he will he will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He'll not leave the work he began. And so, friend, as we leave this text, we leave with an exhortation. An exhortation, first of all, to lay low before our God. If any are saved, friend, it is only a work of divine grace. We have, as Jonathan Edwards put it to us, so very clearly contributed only our sin to the work of redemption. So we are to lay low before him. We are also to exalt grace. It's a remarkable thing that the Spirit of God blows upon any. 
And then, friend, you and I, we are to plead for greater blowing. We are to plead more and more. The quickening that has begun in our lives, the quickening that we long to see in others, would be manifest in our generation more. And so, friend, may we be such a praying people, a mindful people, as we leave this text. Amen.